0: Right now, 23,000 Americans die every year from drug resistant infections, and another 2 million go to the doctor or put into the hospital because they have resistant illness. And a significant portion of that can be very clearly linked back to agricultural use of antibiotics. You're listening to Food Integrity Now. With your host, Carol Gervais.
1: Hello and welcome to Food Integrity Now. I'm Carol Gervais. I am a certified holistic nutritionist and the host of the show. At Food Integrity Now, we like to investigate and explore what's happening in our food supply so that you can make wise decisions for your health and for your family's health. And I'd like to give a big shout-out to Ben Sound Music for our intro and outro music. Hi, it's Carol Grave, and I am a certified holistic nutritionist, a life coach, and the host of Food Integrity Now. What you eat and how you eat can greatly affect the way you look and feel and whether or not you get sick. If your immune system is compromised, you might have brain fog, allergies, low energy, depression, or worse, have a disease. A poor diet can lead to diabetes, cancer, Alzheimer's, and virtually all other diseases. I take great pride in working with individuals and groups and seeing how they create such positive changes in their lives. I offer one-on-one coaching packages, Or we can design a package just for your group. To find out more, go to foodintegritycoaching.com or call me at 415-302-7100 for your free consultation. I offer phone and Skype sessions. And this really is all about quality of life. Let me assist you to have the best quality ever. Hi, it's Carol again. Do you drink almond milk? Do you know that packaged almond milk contains all sort of nasty additives like carrageenan and barely contains any actual almonds? The good news is that you can make fresh almond milk at home in minutes. Once you taste the creamy, fresh flavor of homing almond milk, you'll never go back. I make my almond milk at home with a Nutiana Nut Milk Bag. It's great, easy to use, easy to clean, and makes my almond milk silky smooth. Buy yours today by searching the Nutiana Nut Milk Bag on Amazon. That's N-U-T-I-A-N-A. Not milk bag, or go to Nutiana.com. You're going to love this bag. My guest today is Marianne McKenna. Marianne is an award winning journalist and author specializing in public health and food policy. Her work has appeared in such periodicals as National Geographic, The New York Times Magazine, The Atlantic, Wired, and many other publications. Her 2015 TED Talk, What Do We Do When Antibiotics Don't Work Anymore, has garnered more than one million views. McKenna is the author of two previous books, Superbug and Beating Back the Devil, but today we're going to be talking with her about her latest book, Big Chicken, the incredible story of how antibiotics created modern agriculture and changed the way the world eats. Marin, welcome to Food Integrity Now.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: We are so excited to talk to you today, but let's start out with you telling us a little bit more about you and your background.
0: So I'm a journalist, and the book that we're going to talk about, Big Chicken, is my third book. And for the entire time that I've been a journalist, I've focused on public health and global health and food policy and food safety. And that I have pursued that through newspaper jobs and as a magazine journalist and through my previous books, which were called Beating Back the Devil and Superbug. And now in this book, which is the story of how we came to give antibiotics to most of the meat animals on the planet and how we discovered that was a terrible idea.
1: Okay, great. Well, it's my understanding that about 80% of the antibiotics sold just in the U.S. goes to agriculture. and That's I th- right. I think that's pretty shocking. I don't think a lot of people realize that. But that being said, let's start at the beginning. What were chickens like before they became industrialized, like during our grandparents and our great-grandparents era? Let's talk about that to start off
0: well if you went back to the time of our grandparents or great-grandparents most people would have had some chickens out their back door whether that back door was in the city or on a farm and the reason they would have had chickens primarily was to provide eggs as a, a, a cheap and easy to produce source of protein and for the most part They only ate chicken when a hen's egg-laying days were done. Now, there were some exceptions to that because eggs hatch out in a 50-50 sex ratio, and you don't need as many roosters as you do hens. So periodically, they would cull the excess roosters and eat them young. But the major source of of, of chicken protein (laughs) were hens. And when a hen has been spending a couple of years flapping around a barnyard, scratching up insects, feeding herself, and also chasing after chicks and defending them. She's going to have a rich flavor because she will have gotten a lot of exercise, but by the same token, she's probably be going to be kind of scrawny and chewy. And so if you look back into uh, cookbooks from our great-grandparents' time, most of the recipes for chicken involve the kind of low, slow heat that tenderizes tough muscle and tendon. And it took a, a, a whole rolling series of innovations, of which routine use of antibiotics is the leading one, but by no means the only one, to turn that chewy, kind of aged chicken of our great-grandparents' time to the the tender, somewhat flavorless, very young, efficient, consistent, reliable chicken that we eat today.
1: So how did we go from from there to here? Let's talk about uh, some of the innovations that happened starting as early as, what, 19... 40, was it? Or 50? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sure. Let's start about some of those innovations that, at the time, they seemed like they were really good ideas.
0: So the very first uh, actually is the invention of the electric incubator, (laughs) so that you can uh, keep it, you can get a couple of more months of useful life out of a hen if you don't allow her to brood and hatch her own eggs, but instead do that mechanically. And then after that came the development of synthetic vitamins, which allowed farmers to keep birds over the winter when the birds had to be kept inside and when there were no insects and no vegetation for them to eat. And then in the late 1940s, we get two things simultaneously. We get the, the reinvention of chicken um, as a the re- literal reshaping of chicken into uh, something more like the chickens we eat today, the hybridization of chicken to be a, not a feisty backyard bird, but a docile, big-breasted, pale, feathered bird that doesn't want to move very much. And crucially, most important, we get the use of antibiotics in animal feed and animal water rations, which comes about because of a complex set of trends at the end of World War II, but which ends up um, sort of reframing chicken and really all meat proteins, all meat animals, as not sort of individual animals, but more sort of a consistent product moving through an assembly line.
1: Okay, so I'm curious uh, how this happened. We went from having this backyard chicken and then... I guess a better question is why did this happen? Why did they want to get more of us to eat chicken? What was the reasoning behind that?
0: So there's a whole interesting and complicated set of trends and events that come together at the end of World War II. So first is antibiotics. I mean, none of us think of this because we were all born within the antibiotic era, but antibiotics have actually not been around that long. The the very first signal of what antibiotics were going to become was in 1928 when Alexander Fleming, whom everyone learns right. of as the father of penicillin, he, uh, he has he leaves a couple of plates of bacteria, uh, like like petri dishes, open in his laboratory in London, and he leaves a window open because it's 1928 and they don't have air conditioning. And when he goes back to clean those plates off and reuse them, he discovers that a bacterium has blown in through the window, is excreting a compound that kills the bacteria that's already growing on his plate, and and from that discovery we get. A number of years later, in nineteen the early nineteen forties, we get the first antibiotic, penicillin, and penicillin changes the world. It it cures infectious diseases in hours or days that could would previously have caused people to have terrible, lingering deaths, and it makes such a difference to the conduct of World War II. It, it saves the lives of hundreds of thousands of soldiers and sailors on the battlefields, and and crew, after it after the war is over and it's released to the general public, causes just as much of a sensation in society as it did in the military. And looking at that, other companies decide that they want their own version of the miracle drug as well. And so between the end of the war and 1948, we get all of the drugs that make up what the start of the antibiotic era, not just penicillin, but streptomycin and Chloramphenicol and the tetracycline class of drugs, and those will be important later. So that's one of the things that's going on. The second is that at the same time, at the end of the war, and because of the war, the system of food production feels very fragile all of a sudden. And that's partly because lots of aspects of food production have been harmed or destroyed by the war. Flocks, and herds have been decimated. Arable land has been ruined. The fishing fleets were commandeered into military use. And and it, at the same time, there's been a vast upsurge in the ability to produce meat because there were all those soldiers and sailors who needed to be fed. And when that guaranteed market goes away, suddenly the meat industry is left with overcapacity and a need to cut costs in order to, keep from going broke entirely. And those two trends of the fragility and, and um, undermining of meat production and the arrival of antibiotics come together at the end of 1948. There's a scientist named Thomas Jukes, He's an expert in the dietary needs of chickens. He happens to work for one of the companies that produce one of the first antibiotics, a drug called chlorotetracycline, which is the first of the tetracycline class of drugs. And the the company's called Letterly Laboratories. It's outside New York City. And Jukes has been tasked with finding a cheap supplement to enhance the cheap feed that meat producers are now giving to their livestock in order to save money. And out of all the various supplements he's trialing, which are things like cod liver oil and synthetic vitamins and distillers grains and um, vitamin B12, he gets the idea to to give tiny doses of his own company's antibiotic to the animals that he is testing these supplements in, which happen to be um, newborn baby chicks. And when he weighs all the chickens at the end of his experiment – The chicks that have received the trace amounts of chlorotetracycline have gained more than twice as much weight as the chicks that didn't get anything at all, and more weight than any of the chicks getting any of the other supplements. So all of a sudden, in addition to the vast um, enthusiasm for the effect of antibiotics in people, we also have suddenly a new avenue to sell even more antibiotics, which is to sell them into farming. And out of that, that so, so they call that growth promotion, the, the, the causing animals to, to gain weight more quickly than they would have otherwise. And that sparks a huge expansion in just the volume of farming being done in the United States. And so, so meat production, first in chicken and then in other animals, it kind of gets in front of itself, produces much, much more meat um including much much more chicken but it's not necessarily at least at first a chicken that people particularly want to eat.
1: Okay, so in, in other words we were we were creating more we were creating more supply than we were demand.
0: Right, and there are several times in the story of chicken in particular in which supply gets out in front of demand and the industry has to scramble to catch up. And one of those times uh, results in the chickens that we have today, which are so different from those, those great grandparent time chickens, not just because of the use of antibiotics, but because of precision nutrition and also because of intense hybridization crossbreeding. And where all that comes from is a contest that's held between 1946 and 1951 by the USDA, and the A and P supermarkets that is called the Chicken of Tomorrow contest.
1: Oh, wow, I, I love that I oh feel like I
0: need, I need uh, some kind of like echoey, science fiction um, uh, sound effect behind me when I say right, that. Right, right. So, so the problem is, as we talked about, you know, the chickens of our great grandparents' time were kind of scrawny birds that ran around barnyards. And, uh, People didn't particularly want to eat those birds. And so if you are producing more and more chicken, but the more and more chickens are still chickens that are descended from relatively bony, highly exercising, very feisty birds, then you have a problem. What you have to do is to make people want to eat more of the birds that you are producing more of. And so what this contest does is to ask breeders around the country to reshape chicken. To turn chicken into something that, that people, particularly women, because they are the, the gatekeepers of food and nutrition for their families, that women will want to buy and cook and people will want to eat. The, the promos for the, the contest, which were printed by the USDA, talk about people, um, being attracted to chickens that would have breasts you could slice like a steak, which it was not for, for the chickens of, that existed at the time and so over the course of this contest breeders from around the country take the varieties of what we would now call heritage or standard bred chicken um that that previously existed and and crossbreed them and crossbreed them until what they end up with is a fat docile not flapping around um not 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 flying very much not flapping up into trees white feathered because uh white uh, birds with white feathers look cleaner when they're plucked breast heavy chicken that is and that the chickens that win the 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 chicken of tomorrow contest are the great grandparents and and the sort of the 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 start of the families of all of the chickens that we still eat today. And they so it so successfully changes the shape of chicken that people start to eat more chicken because suddenly chickens are more tasty to them.
1: Yeah, and, and there, when you say they wanted chickens that slice like meat, I mean, we were used to eating so much meat during that time. It w- It makes sense. It was a way to get people to eat the chicken, like they were used to eating the meat,
0: that's right, and chicken actually so so now in the United States, we eat significantly more chicken than we do beef. We eat more than ninety pounds of chicken per person per year in the united states and and it's it's almost twice as much wow. uh, as we eat beef, but that didn't used to be the case, and uh, there's another um, moment in the history of chicken where demand gets out and sorry, where supply gets out in front of demand and demand has to be stimulated. And, and that's the moment that brings us what we now know as the chicken nugget.
1: Oh, because, I love this story. Yeah. To be, share because
0: this. those chickens that the chickens that emerge from the chicken of tomorrow contest, even though they're more sort of, you know, they're, they're heavy breasted and they're docile, they're easier to grow. They're more attractive after they're slaughtered. They're still, a chicken. They're an in, chickens are only being sold intact or at most, you know, minimally cut up in supermarkets or in butcher shops. But in the 1950s and early 1960s, as women are entering the workplace more and more, that comes to be a problem because uh, even in a culture that that cooked much more than we do now, cooking a whole chicken at night is kind of a a it's it's a bit of a challenge and and so the chicken industry had to come up with other ways for people other ways to shape chicken that would make it quicker to cook and make people want to eat it more and if you think about it in our history we already tackled that problem for pork and for beef because cows and pigs get cut up into many different cuts some of which are quite quick cooking Um, And we also have traditions of taking um, the meat of cattle and pigs and turning it into products that can be eaten later, like sausages, for instance, or or jerky or something, cured meats of various kinds. And none of that really existed for chicken. And so uh, at Cornell University, a, a food science professor was tasked with trying to expand the market for chicken. His name was Robert Baker. And he came up in a basement laboratory in the early 1960s with everything that we think of now as being chicken that we see when we walk into a supermarket from chicken hot dogs to chicken cold cuts to, in some cases, you know, sort of chicken ham. But his most enduring invention was what he called the chicken stick. But when you look at his original specs for what he was doing, it's very clearly the original chicken nugget. And what that did was to take chicken off the bone to take it off the carcass that's difficult to handle and, and slow to cook and make it something that could be cooked in minutes. And from that moment, chicken consumption in the United States takes off, surpasses beef, and now, as I said, is almost double what it is for beef in the U.S.
1: Well, that's amazing. And not only that, but what did the low-fat guidelines have to do with the increase in our chicken consumption?
0: Right, that happens at about the same time. It's really interesting how all these uh, these events happen serendipitously together. So in 1977, there's a government document published, which is the forerunner of the dietary guidelines for the United States that we hear so much about today that get argued over every few years. And those first dietary guidelines uh, said that Americans should eat less saturated fat. They were concerned about the occurrence of heart disease in the U.S., but people interpreted less saturated fat as less eating of red meat, so suddenly there was a, a, a what appeared to be a government mandate to eat white meat instead of red meat, and that meant chicken and so now this that the ability to cook chicken quickly happened to coincide historically with an Uh, what looked like an endorsement by the government of eating chicken more. And those two things combined just sent chicken off into the stratosphere.
1: Wow. And I have a quote from your book, and this pretty much sums it up. It, it, It says, the demand increase made growth promoters essential. It also made them normal, so routine that when food companies started introducing antibiotics into our diets, no one thought that was odd.
0: It's true. It's amazing how quickly all of this becomes normalized.
1: So that begs the questions, where were the regulators during this time?
0: You know, it's a complicated question because it, they, because if you ask where are the regulators, you have to also ask where was the science that they were relying on. Right. And when I, when I look back at the science that was done around adding antibiotics to animal feed in the 50s and 60s, it's clear that they were those scientists were thinking to some degree about what the consequences might be of what they were doing, but they didn't think far enough ahead now, let me take you through what happens because the, we really need to talk about why this antibiotic use is a concern it's not only a concern because it changes the rules for meat production but but also it's a concern because it eventually poses a threat to human health right so when when you give uh, Antibiotics to an animal, and we we give them for three reasons. We give them as we do in humans to, to cure an infection or disease. But we also, in animals and never in humans, give antibiotics for growth promotion to make animals put on weight more quickly and also for prevention to keep them from getting sick in the more crowded barns and feedlots that begin to spring up after growth promoters come into use and make it. More feasible and plausible to produce animals more rapidly, to stimulate growth and to prevent disease, we give antibiotics routinely in food and water. So they're going into the animals' digestive systems. They end up in the gut community of bacteria. That many types of bacteria that lives in the guts of chickens and of every living thing, including us. The, those those antibiotics influence some of those bacteria to turn toward antibiotic resistance. And all that antibiotic resistance is, is bacteria's way of developing defenses against the compounds, antibiotics, that are sent at them to kill them. And they, they might change their shape or thicken their cell walls. They have a whole bunch of evolutionary maneuvers to protect themselves. So those resistant bacteria are now in the guts of the animal. And they get out of the animal in one of several ways. One is that they pass out of the animal in manure when the animal is still alive, and then through a variety of pathways, through, through groundwater, through s- stormwater runoff, through um, wind blowing by, through the fi- on the feet of insects, those resistant bacteria and the resistance DNA they carry, leave the farm and get out into the wider world. The other way is that when those animals are killed and disassembled to become the meat that we eat, some of their gut contents may get on the meat that they've just become. And then those resistant bacteria travel with the meat through the the retail or wholesale chain and into home and restaurant kitchens. And then they cause... Drug resistant illness, a thing that drug resistant foodborne illness, a thing that never existed before we began giving antibiotics to animals in this way.
1: And that's why we should care.
0: That's why we should, we should, I mean, we should care about giving antibiotics routinely to animals because it's a waste of antibiotics. We should care because it undermines animal welfare and a whole bunch of other issues that circle around farming. But th- we should care the most because It contributes to the international epidemic of antibiotic resistance that is swamping the world because the the drugs that we use for animals in this manner are are, most of the time are the same as the drugs that we use to cure these infections in humans. So if someone becomes ill with a drug-resistant infection, we cannot use the antibiotic we would have used to kill them. Because that antibiotic has already been used on the farm and had its power undermined that right now twenty three thousand Americans Die every year from drug resistant infections and another two million go to the doctor or put into the hospital because they have Resistant illness and a significant portion of that can be very clearly linked back to agricultural use of antibiotics
1: Wow, that is amazing I don't think that most people really understand that, and that's why your book is so important. Thank uh, you. So, back to my question about the regulators.
0: The regulators, yes, yes. I'm so sorry. Sorry. No, to but but I'm that, glad that. that
1: I'm glad that you you went into that because I think people hear that term antibiotic resistant, but they don't really understand that. But you articulated that very well. So thank you for that. So back to the regulators. Where were
0: they? So what's first. So, at first, I, I said, why you know, why why didn't the scientists help the regulators?" and it's it's clear when i look, I look back at the earliest scientific papers about this that they were doing at least a little thinking about what would happen inside the animals, given antibiotics, but they apparently never thought to worry about drug resistant bacteria leaving the animals and leaving the farm and pervading society. So they just didn't really do a good job of estimating the risk. So the first regulators that really take this seriously are in England in the 1960s. England's a smaller country. Their agriculture is much more sort of cheek by jowl with towns and cities. And all of a sudden there are outbreaks in England of Drug-resistant foodborne infection: Salmonella, Campylobacter, Shigella. That thinks that it, that has never existed before in the world. And a smart scientist, who's very hooked into the government, links those outbreaks back to particular farms and causes enough alarm through b- befriending sa- interested members of the media that the British government in 1969. Uh, writes a report that calls for the banning of growth promoter antibiotics, and that gets passed in 1971. And then the American government actually tries to do the same thing in, in 1977. And An activist new commissioner of the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, tries to take away the licenses for using antibiotics on farms that his own agency granted in the 1950s, but he never accomplishes that because several powerful congressmen with agricultural interests behind them step in and prevent him from taking the licenses away and tell the white house that if he goes ahead with this process they will hold hostage the entire budget of the fda and so in 1977 the the u.s government's attempt to to regulate this in order to protect human health is forestalled and it stays forestalled for another couple of decades until in, in 2013 the Obama administration decides to, to take another run at it and it, kind of, to everyone's surprise, uh, succeeds.
1: So when you say succeeds, where are we at now?
0: Um, so we're at a moment that is simultaneously positive and fragile. Um, and and we have some reform, but it's partial reform. So. What the Obama administration did, and it was actually quite a savvy move, was they wanted to take growth promoters out of the picture, as had been done in England in the 70s, in Scandinavia in the 1980s, in the European Union in 2006. And what they asked instead of passing a law that Congress could interfere with was they asked drug drug manufacturers to go along with a voluntary rule in which the manufacturers would change the labels on their antibiotics in such a way that the, labels, that the drugs could no longer legally be used for growth promotion. And kind of to everyone's surprise, the manufacturers agreed. And there's a complex set of reasons why they agreed, but the, the, the end result is that they agreed. And so as of January 1st this year, which is when these regulations, which are technically called guidances, went into effect, growth promoter antibiotics are no longer legal in the United States. Now, unfortunately, that other use of antibiotics, prevention to keep animals from getting sick in crowded barns and feedlots, that is still legal. In fact, it's still legal pretty much all over the world. And it accounts for very significant proportions of antibiotic use in animals. In fact, the World Health Organization just about two weeks ago now called for a, a ban worldwide on preventive use of antibiotics in agriculture, which was, is a much bigger step than the regulations that we got here in January. And that next step is going to be much harder to accomplish. Uh, but until we do, the, the generating of resistant bacteria from antibiotic use in farming is going to continue.
1: And really, didn't the use of antibiotics in chicken really influence or teach the rest of the agricultural world how to use antibiotics
0: in that? I think so, yeah. Yeah. Because chickens, chickens are the first animals to get growth promoters experimentally. They are the experiment that proves that this is possible. And that gets copied very quickly by, first it gets, it propagates through poultry production very rapidly because it's essentially money for nothing. You know, it's tiny doses of antibiotics and really substantial weight gain. And it gets picked up quite fast, first by pigs, by the pig industry. In fact, uh, the company Hormel is um, really influential in this. They, They set up a Hormel Institute in which they study how to hurry along the development of pigs and antibiotics are a key part of that. And then after that, they start to get used in cattle. So chickens are inadvertently the perpetrators of this historic mistake that changes the shape of farming and also imperils human health. But now in the United States, at any rate, chickens are really kind of walking that back. Before these Obama administration rules came out, in 2014, the company Purdue Farms, the fourth largest chicken company in America, Mm -hmm. announced, kind of out of the blue, that they had studied the subject and they decided they were going to go antibiotic-free. And that was a real shock to the rest of the poultry industry. I suspect that Purdue was not all that popular with their colleagues in, in poultry. But now, so many companies have followed their lead, both food production companies and food service companies. So that's like Tyson and Cargill and Chick-fil-A and McDonald's and Taco Bell and Subway and Costco and Walmart are all either producing or selling chicken that's raised without the routine use of antibiotics. Now, chickens are chickens are kind of uncomplicated in, in raising terms. You know, we, we kill most chickens at 42 days of age. They go into their barns right after they've hatched and they don't leave them until the night they're picked up for slaughter cattle and pigs live longer and move around more in their lives. And so protecting them against diseases is a lot more complicated. So progress against progress in cattle and pigs is going to take a lot longer, but it's very clear to me that consumers are saying to all the meat production companies, this is what we want. We want to not be worried about the routine use of antibiotics in the raising of the meat we eat. We want you to change our practices and we will vote with our dollars. Yeah, for and, that,
1: and that's how we effectuate change. You know, what you just said there is, you know, by consumer demand, by each one of us saying, no, we don't want this.
0: I, you know, if, I really think that the reason that the Obama administration felt it was possible to go ahead with these really radical new rules radical not in their content but just that they did them at all was because there already was a brewing consumer movement starting in about i would say roughly about 2010 um first big healthcare institutions start getting worried that resistant bacteria on meat will imperil their vulnerable patients cancer patients people in ICUs transplant patients and so forth And they start saying to the buyers for their institutional catering, go for meat that's antibiotic-free. Then they're joined by very large school systems. Uh, The the first school system to do this was the Chicago Public Schools. That's a very large school system. And they, too, said to their institutional buyers, look for meat that's antibiotic-free. We don't want to endanger the children whom we are feeding every day. And so when you take big healthcare institutions and the universities they're attached to, and big school systems for high schools and elementary schools and the influence of those kids taking, you know, knowledge about what they're eating back to their families. And then you add in the advocacy from people whose families have been victims of antibiotic-resistant infections and the interest of chefs in serving something different and the interest in farmers of switching to a healthier mode of production. That's a big consumer movement. And I really think that's at the backdrop of everything that's happened in the United States in the past few years around antibiotics and meat.
1: Oh, I I totally agree. And I know uh, to our listeners, I just wanted to say we're, we're kind of talking a lot, uh, except for just what we were speaking about, a lot about kind of the bad news. But what I really love about the book is that you talk about solutions which we think is really important because you can't give people this is this is what's happening and we're doomed because that is not the case so in a moment we're going to talk about some of the things that um, you suggest as solutions or what you've seen in your travels but before we do that I think something is very important to talk about which I found fascinating is when you talk about UTIs in your book and what that has to do with antibiotic resistance. Can you share a little bit about what you've learned about that?
0: This is an amazing story. Thank you for asking me about it. It's, it's, and it's complicated. So I think, you know, once you start explaining to people, well, there are these animals and we give them antibiotics and they consume the antibiotics and the antibiotics go into their gut and they affect the bacteria that are in their guts, people start to understand how the diseases that we get from food can become antibiotic resistant because the things that we worry about that are food poisoning organisms salmonella shigella campylobacter those are all organisms that come from the guts of animals and then contaminate the meat that we eat and and cause us foodborne illness and that that foodborne illness then can become antibiotic resistant that kind of makes an intuitive kind of sense to people the uti story is more complicated because here's what happens. The, 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 the initial steps are the same. The, the animals get antibiotics. The antibiotics influence their gut bacteria toward resistance. The res- newly resistant bacteria exit the animals on their meat when they're disassembled. Then someone eats those bacteria. But instead of them causing uh, the reaction of a foodborne illness right away, what happens instead is that those bacteria, and in this case it's usually E. coli, as opposed to the other bacteria I was just talking about, they become part of the mix of the, um, the bacteria that reside in our intestines, and they're just there sort of quiescently. And then at some point, what's now our gut contents escapes our guts and gets into our urinary systems. And any woman who's ever had a UTI will understand the process that I'm talking about. Women are just naturally more vulnerable to UTIs because of our anatomy um, compared to the anatomy of men. So those bacteria from the gut get into the urinary system, climb up to the bladder, cause a bladder infection. But if a woman goes to a doctor and gets treated with antibiotics for a a bladder infection, and it doesn't get better, what the doctor is likely to think is that she just got reinfected in some manner, when in fact what happened was that she was never cured because the organism is resistant. And the reason that that misperception happens is that for most bladder infections, UTIs, we don't actually test for the bacterium. We just kind of assume that we know what's going on and write out a standard script for antibiotics. So and a, a bladder infection that doesn't respond to antibiotics is effectively an untreated infection. And an untreated infection in the urinary system can climb up to the kidneys through the kidneys, into the bloodstream, from the bloodstream to other organs, and in the worst cases, can cause death from septic shock. So that's the ultimate possible end result of the use of antibiotics in agriculture, is some portion of the urinary tract infections and more serious bladder and kidney infections and other organ infections that occur every year. By one estimate, possibly 10% of the UTIs that occur in the United States each year are linked to farm antibiotic use. That means potentially 600 to 800,000 cases every year.
1: I think that's amazing because I've been doing a lot of research on Alzheimer's and dementia. And I know that they're finding a correlation between a high rate of UTIs and dementia and Alzheimer's. So, you know, that's just something else that could happen circuitously, but not so much through the antibiotic resistance. So that that's, that is a very big concern. And when you look at the number of elderly people who get UTIs, it's a very common thing. And they're antibiotic resistant, you know, what you've just stated about what could happen that Probably becomes more likely in the elderly mm-hmm. you know that's just another reason why we should care and why we need to take steps to to shift this now we've we've talked about kind of the bad news, and you know we haven't covered everything there's so much more in the book there's what I love about it is there's narratives there's stories of, of individuals that have been really affected by this antibiotic resistance throughout the book, and um, I think those those stories are very important. But now I want to talk about some of the, some of the solutions that you think is are happening all over the world
0: in the, uh, the in the process of doing this book. I, I went to a couple of other countries because I wanted to see in places that were doing antibiotic free raising whether it was working and. and how the farm economy was doing and whether consumers were responding positively. And so I, I went to France and to the Netherlands because in, in France, there is a form of raising of chicken that uses a, a, a bird hybridized out of several heritage lines. They're raised fully outdoors, often in, in under trees and forests. Um, they are raised in much smaller quantities on much smaller farms. So they're much easier. It's easier to keep that farm economy going because people can get into it without spending too much money. Young people can get into it. And it turns out that that is, and it's always been antibiotic-free, and it's very successful. In fact, that kind of chicken, um, which I talk about in the book and which is completely delicious, it, it's the chicken that everybody eats as, as the family Sunday lunch in France. So it's completely enshrined in the culture. So that's very low-tech, small-scale, antibiotic-free raising. Then I went to the Netherlands, which uh, despite being one of the smallest countries in Europe, is, is one of its largest food exporters because in the Netherlands, since they don't have a lot of land to spare, they've perfected very intensive, very high throughput meat production but they do it without antibiotics. In fact, the Netherlands has cut antibiotic use in farming more than almost any other country in the European Union and their farmers are completely behind it and really are excited by the challenges of raising meat without using antibiotics. And and both of those both of those visits gave me hope because in France I saw that it's possible for antibiotic-free as a value to support small holdings and pastured farms and the return of of small and medium-sized producers to the market. And in the Netherlands, I was able to see that if you take antibiotics out of the system, if you do the right things in compensation, you can keep very efficient, very consistent, very, very high production meat production systems and keep costs down. And and both of those things are things that we need to sustain an, an antibiotic free meat economy going forward.
1: Wonderful. So let's talk about the US. What are some of the people doing here? I, I wanna on a personal note, I have a friend, his name is Paul Greeb, and he has a a farm called Primal Pastures. And what he is doing is he he started out with, I think he started out with 20 chickens and just thought it'd be fun to do this. Well, long story short, I think it's been about five years. He now has 25 to 30,000 birds. He uses no vaccinations or antibiotics. Uh, he uses uh, rotating chicken coops, kind of the Joel Salatin method. And if you're not familiar with Joel Salatin, look him up. But and his birds are absolutely wonderful, so it can be done. And so, what else have you noticed?
0: So, the thing that is really encouraging to me about the the move toward antibiotic free meat or meat raised without routine antibiotic use is that it opens up the market for producers like him. That's the their pasture bird, I think. Is that right? In California, they are pasture they, bird. They,
1: yeah, they're in Meridian. Yeah.
0: They they have a beautiful Instagram account with gorgeous pictures of their animals. (laughs) But all over this country, I have met producers like that. Um, I tell the story in the book of white Oak pastures in South Georgia, which was a fully, fully technological, fully antibiotic using cow calf operation. And now um, with changes made by the proprietor, who is the fourth generation of the family, um, and his daughter's coming along behind him. Um, it's now a fully organic, uh, antibiotic-free, pasture-based farm with 10 species rotating through it, including chickens, um, both broiler chickens and layer chickens. Uh, and there are farms like that now all over the country who could not have competed in the marketplace for meat just on the basis of price because Birds raised like that on pasture with, with moved coops and so forth are inherently more expensive to raise because the labor costs are higher. But when you turn the meat marketplace from, from judging things only on cost to judging things as well on values, values such as uh, as animal welfare values, such as using heritage birds, values such as as doing regenerative agriculture to restore the soil, then and people start to fold those um, those values into the consideration of what they want to spend. That allows small and medium producers to come back into the market in a way that they never could if they were competing against Purdue and Tyson and Smithfield and so forth only on the basis of price. So that, I think, is a a very – that's that's a very positive development for small and medium-sized producers. And I think there are positives for the animals as well, even with the very big producers. I mean, Purdue, who led this parade of poultry going antibiotic-free – in order to keep from using antibiotics, they've had to improve the lives of the birds they raise in a number of ways. They give them opportunities to exercise now. They've cut windows in the barns so the birds can get sunlight on their feathers. They've improved their diets and taken rendered protein from other slaughtered animals out. They give them herbs and beneficial bacteria. They may even be starting to think about making the birds have slightly longer lives so all of those things are improving the welfare of animals raised even in very industrial scale systems and the thing that, that to, to wrap back around to the things we were talking about first the kind of the magic in all of this is that all those things i just described that um are making industri- making it possible for industrial producers to not use antibiotics and to um all the to stimulate the birds' immune systems in other ways, all of those things return flavor to the flesh as well. Running around, eating a different diet, getting sunlight on their feathers, those are things that make chickens tastier as well as making them healthier.
1: Yeah, and I think we as consumers need to get away from the the concept, I guess you would call it, of I want a big, huge chicken with a big, huge breast. You know, that's pretty much not going to happen if the birds are being raised properly in my opinion do you agree or I think so yeah so I think it's a re-education and I think once people understand because a lot of people maybe not haven't thought about this why have the birds changed or or, or maybe they just didn't know they changed maybe they thought they were always that way So I think your book is wonderful in the education that it just offers for people who really want to understand. And then through education, they can make wiser choices. So that's what it's all about. So before we let you go, is there anything else that I haven't asked you that you'd like to let our listeners know? Anything else you want to add?
0: The one thing I would say is that I really encourage people as much as they can. To make their decisions about buying meat on the basis of whether antibiotics were used or not. And you can see it on the label because, um, because com- producers now are competing in the marketplace uh, against other producers that are going antibiotic free. So look for phrases like raised without antibiotics, raised without routine antibiotics. Sometimes it will say something like raised with without critically important antibiotics, which means they haven't gone fully antibiotic-free, but they're getting there. The reason why I ask people to do this is because we need to see this expand. We, we need to see that sector of the marketplace take over the market. It is better for the animals. It's better for human health. And it's, it will protect the power of antibiotics longer into the future. And all of those things are critical. So if we vote for our dollars for meat raised without routine antibiotic use, more producers will rush in to fill that demand, and that's what we need.
1: Oh, very well said. Well, thank you, Maren, for being a guest on our show today. The book is Big Chicken, and it's available everywhere, pretty much, isn't it? Amazon. and Yes, it is. And thank you to our listeners for joining us today, and please share this information with someone you know, and I call it Each, each One Teach One. And the more informed we are, the better our health will be. Be informed and be well. Thank you.